Hello, Internet. My name is Walter Ciades Fedchuk, and welcome back to the Final Cut Podcast presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. Chase and I have not uh, become mortal enemies because of our disagreements about Tar. We are going to soldier on with the podcast. We have decided to let bygones be bygones. And I swear, if he tackles me off of this conductor's podium, I might have a fucking conniption. Uh, but of course, the, 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 the person I'd want to go on a cruise with the second most in my life, <laughs> Chase Wassener. Smart man on was, second place. I will gladly I take second. second. That is the right place to put me. Um, oh, man. Well, I'm very excited to talk about this film uh, because Tar was, I'm going to say an ambush per se. I, I think it was a, I was caught off guard. It brought me back to the early days of doing this podcast, in which I was not sure where you would come down on a film versus where I would come down on a film. And, you know, we have the spreadsheet that I promise I will remember to link in these episode descriptions one day. And I was looking through and it's like, okay, I got it. There's a trend. I can pin these things down. And I was wrong. And that happens. We're all wrong from time to time. So this film is going to be fascinating to me because I'm not sure how I feel about this film. I feel like this film was three different films of vastly different qualities. So I can't wait to get into it. Well, that's fantastic, Chase, because uh, I have three different opinions of this film that uh, my my you know I, I've come up with. So we're gonna we're gonna pitch all three of them. We're gonna see how they land, uh, and then at the end of the day, you know, um, who knows? We'll see who's left standing on the island. Uh, but the film, which you lovely listeners have probably already seen in the title, um, is Triangle of Sadness. Now, I know as the teaser, I said back to school for social studies. In the moment, I meant history, but in reality, it's sociology because Triangle of Sadness is a... It's a black comedy and it's a satire of the ultra-wealthy. It is a backdrop for the relationship problems of a celebrity model couple. Am, am I... Am I kind of in the right ballpark there, Chase? Because it is basically three different movies. Yeah, it's it starts with us following a couple uh, that is, on the whole, deeply unlikable. They get to go on a yacht surrounded by other deeply unlikable, but more entertainingly so people. And then, like you would hope for a film that is casted by mostly uh, uh, people that you love to hate, the ship fucking blows up and we get a part three in which they're forced to survive together. And it turns out that only the people who are quote unquote lower class have any sort of actual skills to bring to the table beyond just being rich. So on that front, I think this film has some, some good points. I, I don't know how much of this is new, but I do think that there are some points in which they do it very well. And then there's the rest of it. So we can just, I, I will say going in, I didn't really know what to expect. I haven't seen a Ruben Ostlund film. Um, this was part of my pretentious movie night series with my roommate, um, which thankfully Walter was willing to kind of sub in 
for our original film, which we will do next time. That's still happening. Um, but I did not know what to expect going in. I thought it was going one way in the first few minutes, like the pre-credits scene to start off the film. And that was not the film. So it was certainly a very interesting experience throughout. Yeah, I, when I when we say there's three different films that are essentially in here, that's actually what's on the screen in front of us and not like what the expectations of what we were going to watch going into it. I, I have to say that from what I kind of saw from synopsises and not any like reviews or anything like that, I was sort of getting like a the menu which i haven't seen but i've actually read a bunch about the menu because unfortunately as much as i'm going to want to like watch that movie it just has too much horror in it that I, i'm never going to be able to stand but i was thinking maybe it'd be some sort of mix of like the menu and glass onion or something like that and then what i got was um two models talking to each other in a, a restaurant arguing about who's gonna pay the dinner bill and then that turns into like more issues and then she like blatantly tells him like to his face that she's manipulative and that she doesn't love him and just uses him to like further her career and i'm like wait what what wait what the fuck and then he does the, like oh i'm gonna make you love me and i'm like oh well that's how we go on to this cruise and then it just sort of like Keeps building from there, from there, from there, and then... Does it Does it keep building off of that point? Or is it brought up, like, one other time and then very clearly uh, accentuated that none of that ultimately matters across the overall course of this film? Because I feel like it's slightly more the second than the first. Um... I well, let's talk about the first the first movie that's in this movie, and let's talk about Yaya and Carl for mm. like two minutes so that we can move on from them because, uh, yeah, extremely extremely unlikable. Like I, the dining the the restaurant scene reminded me of the happy birthday scene from unbearable weight of massive talent to the point where i was like ready to shut the movie off because i'm like i i don't i don't want to watch this this is fucking fucking terrible <laughs> it just kept going i'm trying to imagine like listeners at home if you could imagine if i just paused the podcast to ask walter whether he wanted to contribute to the anchor fm hosting fees for this show and we just went back and forth about who should be responsible for that, whether it makes sense to get this plan versus the other plan, and trying to factor out how our jobs fund in such that we can make a, an accurate ratio of who should pay for what. Already, you're probably bored by that sentence I just said. That was one sentence. This was like a 10-minute sequence. It, they argue about it at the restaurant. They argue about it in the taxi from the restaurant. He argues about it with her as she's going up to her hotel room. In a scene that is very uncomfortable, because he is very aggressive at a woman who is clearly uh, smaller than him, uh, yelling at her through the elevator door and repeatedly breaking her ability to leave the conversation in a way that I thought was like hinting at some larger violent problem that would be brought back up. It doesn't. It's just an uncomfortable scene. And when they're in the hotel room together, and she's like, you know what? You can ask me anything. His one question 
So did you see the check or not? Like, what are you doing? What are we doing? Why is this the thing that is so important to establish? And I understand the answer. The answer is that this is a film about money. It's a film about the dynamics within relationships and how people relate to each other with money at the center of it. And a film that actually wanted to take the time to look at the gender roles that they're saying that they want to talk about and the kind of balance between his job, which technically makes less because male models make less than female models, but has a much longer shelf life than female models do, that could be a really interesting film, right? You could take some time, see each of their modeling careers, spend time with them separately so that you can see the different challenges that they each face, the reminders of how these dynamics are playing against them. But like you already mentioned, this is just the first film of the three films in this film. So none of this is ever really meaningfully brought up again. The only thing that matters is one, we talked about money, because it's really important that you know that this film is about money. Somehow, I guess he was concerned that the rest of the film wouldn't make that point itself. Um, and two, that their relationship isn't going great. And that's it. I, I don't know why that needed to be 20 minutes of my life, but that is what we did. So that's something. Well, well Chase... You know how you're the one that, as long as we've podcasted, you're usually the one that's done all the research. You have the facts and figures, the numbers all laid out in front of you. You've, you've, you know, done all of this research. How much research did you do on this movie? Research that I do on this movie? Yeah. I did not spend a ton of time researching this film. I will be honest with you. I would love to hear what you've looked into if you have found something. That's right, baby. Walter came prepared. So I watched, I watched three different 15 to 25 minute long interviews with Ruben Ostland discussing this movie because there were some things that I was like curious about, including the opening scene, including this entire opening act. And he did a very nice video with Variety where he breaks down that scene in the restaurant. And Chase, you'll be surprised to learn that Yaya and Carl's relationship and that scene is based off of him and his wife. Oh, good. That's healthy. <laughs> That's a good so, place to start. He, he tells a story about how he started dating his wife, who is a fashion photographer, and he invites her to Khan's uh, film festival and, you know, does what every, you know, man that you know, kind of lives in a, a very stereotyped, like, what does a man do at the beginning of a relationship? He pays for everything, right? So he did. They, he invites her out to come to cons with him, and he takes her out to dinner, like, three or four in a, you know, four dinners in a row, and then he suddenly has this realization of, like, oh, well, I can't, I can't pay for everything. Like, I actually, like, really like this person, and I don't want that to be uh, our relationship is this sort of, like, transactional back and forth of just like me constantly paying for things. Uh, so yeah, so they apparently like had that fight and he breaks down that the actual scene itself. If you pay attention on like a third rewatching of it, Yaya 
absolutely sees that the waiter puts the bill down and and you can see her eyes glance down to it and then glance back up to her, her phone the way they position carl against the wall and in a bit more darkness versus the rest of the uh the venue is showing that he's kind of been trapped and has been placed into this corner um i don't know why i'm telling you any of these things because it doesn't actually matter for the entire rest <laughs> of the film but i just wanted to prove that daddy did his research like, and then you, I watched a bunch of YouTube videos about this. You needed to justify that you spent somewhere between 15 and 45 minutes of your life watching interviews. And you know what? I respect and appreciate it, good sir. I am very concerned that his response was, I mean, look, I got to model it after my real life relationship because, oh God, who, who of the two is he meant to be in that analogy? Because if he's playing the guy, horrifying. Um, but you know, interesting. Very grateful you brought it to our attention. <laughs> I, I am assuming you have more fun facts along the way as we make our way into the parts of the film that actually matter. Because let's be clear here. You could have done that entire scene in about 90 seconds and we could have just gone into the cruise and it would have been fine. It would have been absolutely fine. And the point still would have been made as much as it needed to be made for the rest of this film. And that kind of tightening, that's going to be a, a common theme for me here. It really feels like some tightening could have made this film a lot better than it ended up being. Well, speaking of tightening, let us move on from the first movie of this three-movie <laughs> singular movie, because Act 1 doesn't really matter to the, the larger scale of the film, nor do those characters really matter, because as we enter Act 2, which they are actually aboard this luxury super yacht, which I believe was $450 million, uh, based off of uh, what the Captain Thomas Smith, played by Woody Harrelson, uh, fucking brilliant, um, happens to mention later on, and... As much as we are focusing on Carl and Yaya sort of at the beginning of it, the entirety of the second act introduces us to the cast of characters. The, the captain of the boat, uh, Thomas Smith, uh, the variety of uh, guests that are visiting there, the Russian oligarch Dmitri and his wife. Uh, there is an elderly British couple, Clementine and Winston. Um, there is a, a woman in a wheelchair, uh, Therese, who uh, had a stroke, so she speaks uh, very little kind of broken Germans from suffering from that. Uh, Yarmo, who is a tech millionaire that um, had invited a lovely lady to come with him, but she couldn't uh, couldn't come with him. Um, so he is here by himself. And would you ladies just take a picture of me, you know, so I have something to remember by this. Uh, and then also the... the uh, crew members paula who I, I kept calling her a, like the head stewardess but i feel like that's not the right terminology but she's basically the head of like the service staff uh and yes since this is a like million dollar you know multi-million dollar uh yacht it plays out the staff is exactly like uh what you would expect from that like entertainment show below deck and we get these lovely interactions of what you would expect ultra wealthy people uh and how they would treat serving staff uh, one of the uh, the uh, maintenance workers basically like takes off his shirt and is smoking on the uh, on the top deck. And Yaya, who is here just because like fuck Carl, I guess I want to keep fucking with him, uh, takes some interest in him. And Carl goes and complains and gets him fucking fired. Yeah, man. And they like take how, him off the boat. <laughs> how dare a service worker be attractive? Really, he should have thought about that and not been. Uh 
as physically appealing. That's that's on him, clearly. Which is, you know, honestly, it, it's a great point in how these rich people are able to use their whims and their influence in order to affect the lives of others in a way that most of the time they don't even recognize. Like, Carl in this film actually sees the guy get fired. And granted, he doesn't actually do anything with that knowledge. He doesn't go and argue for the guy to come back and admit that he made a mistake because that would be uh, bigger of him than he is capable of being. But he at least has to acknowledge that his insecurity led to a man losing his job, which is probably more self-awareness than Carl has ever experienced in his life to that point. Uh, and you're right, like, this is a, a section of the film that is very much emphasizing that relationship between the service staff and the rich guests that are on it. Uh, beyond just the, the money chant that all of the service workers get into about why they're here and here's our goal for the weekend, um, there's a really great moment where, like, one of these older women who are on the ship feeling a little bit probably neglected feeling a little bit lonely, asks for one of the service workers to join her in the pool, which obviously they're not allowed to do. She's got a job to do. And she could respect that because that would be, you know, a decent thing to do. But she's convinced herself that what she wants is actually best for the service workers. And in fact, everyone should put an entire pause to their day and go swimming because she wants them to. And in her mind, that's doing them a favor which is the kind of obliviousness that you get from a lot of super upper-class people, this idea that they know best for the people that are quote-unquote beneath them, and that whatever claims they make, whatever things stand out, are, are just excuses because they're just too shy to admit that they want what I believe they want. And as a result, everything gets pushed back, which makes the captain's dinner that ensues uh, much, much messier than it had uh, any right to be otherwise. And it's just that idea that if you are wealthy enough and you are in a position of power, you can just change the lives of numerous people without even really thinking about it. It just kind of happens because you're a person that those people implicitly or explicitly have to listen to. I do find that the the usage you you get like the both sides of the wealthy here you know and how they treat service workers you get carl's where you know hey listen i'm i'm not into dudes but i don't think that dude was very attractive anyways like okay fine you complain about it and and the like i'm complaining about the staff because they're doing something tiny that's wrong apparently versus the like ultra friendly like oh i'm i'm wealthy i get to do whatever i want wouldn't it be nice if you could do whatever you want well i have the power to allow you to do whatever you want why don't you hop in and swim with me with without any regard for consequences of their actions they they don't normally feel those things they don't normally have to worry about it you know we're recording this video here on on February 8th, and today Disney announced that they're going to lay off 7,000 employees. And, you oh. know, the people that are making these decisions are multimillionaires. They don't have to actually feel the consequences of laying all those people off. They are simply 
numbers in a spreadsheet and to see both sides of the coin here, both ways that not just the ultra rich, but just like normal people in general treat service workers, either the like were, were, you know, you slighted me by saying no problem instead of you're welcome versus the like, oh, well, why don't you walk around with me while I shop and you can talk with me and it, it must be nice to be able to take a little bit of a break. And then that person doesn't realize like that employee is going to get yelled at afterwards, even though they're doing exactly what their boss told them. It was nice to see that there were consequences that were experienced by the wealthy in both of these cases. And the I guess the severity of those consequences are are vastly different. Carl, you know, just seeing the dude get fired. And, and I jokingly said to um, my partner, like, oh, that dude's not going home. He's going to get, you know, they're going to f- drive him out into the middle of the ocean and shoot him or something. <laughs> like, which, granted, we don't know what happened to him. Uh, we do know he wasn't on the boat when the boat explodes. So, yeah, I was going to say maybe he know, got attacked by pirates and somehow that's not really a joke. <laughs> in the world of this film, a distinct possibility. Listen, and and the, the act two is essentially split into three parts as well. We have this first part, which is the introduction to the greater cast, um, as we spoke of earlier, and sort of these early interactions. And then we have the second act, which is this captain's dinner, uh, which again, the captain is Woody Harrelson. Um, the captain has been drunk this entire fucking time because it's Woody Harrelson. Like, that's just, if he's playing a boat captain, he's going to be a fucking drunk. Uh, and, and introduces everyone. And there's this lovely scene where Paula, again, the head stewardess, quote unquote, is trying to get Thomas to tell her what day to do the, the captain's dinner. And she goes, any day but Thursday. And because he's like deep in his room, not paying attention, she's like, yeah, Thursday. And she's like, no, we can't do Thursday because of the drop in the barometric pressure. And like anyone who vaguely understands boating or anything understands that a drop in barometric pressure is, oh, there's a storm coming. So while they're beginning this captain's dinner, that all the food has been sitting out for multiple hours because the the uh, Vera had to have everybody swim with her. Uh, has you know it's all seafood so it's gone bad so while they are serving all these people this this delicious rotten seafood there's also waves and the boat is going up and down and i think the cast did a phenomenal job of um as they were walking and i'm sure they used some sort of you know special effect to get it so that the floors were you know sideways or whatever you know angled or whatever but they did an excellent job of showing that the boat wasn't calm, that the water was uneven. Woody Harrelson is basically standing at like a, a 22 degree angle or something. And you can see the difference in their bodies. He's trying to stand, you know, himself perfectly straight, but he's kind of, you know, cocked to the side, uh, almost like a gyroscope and, you know, an excellent job and sort of the pairing off of where they place people. Uh, you have, um, uh, you have Yarmo is sitting with the captain because he's by himself. You have Carl and Yaya uh, sitting with Clementine and Winston, who are this, you know, they're, they're this older uh, British couple that clearly they've been along, to, you know, forever. And they talk about their love and how, you know, how how great they are and how they made their money was personnel explosive devices. Yes. It Mines. Was a, it was a very hard time for them when the Geneva Convention came together and said the landmines were probably a bad call. Which, for the record, 
I honestly think that that sequence is the best part of this film. There are other parts of this film that are more luxurious, more immediately funny, or would stand out more. But so much of our modern culture, when we talk about, you know, it, it's the it's not what you say, it's how you say it culture that I certainly grew up with. Uh, this idea that as long as you put on a nice face and you're kind to people who you happen to run into, nothing else matters. And these people are weapons manufacturers. They have destabilized multiple governments and needed to in order to make the profit that allows them to be on this yacht. But they're very nice people. And they're perfectly happy to talk about how much they love each other and cherish each other. And, oh, what a special moment that we've been able to get through and support each other through the hard times. As objectively horrible people. And I think that in times like these, I, I think that's a point that could not be more important for people to start wrapping their head around. Like, I am so tired of people who are arguing that, like, the people who say mean words at those people are more of a problem than the people who are very nice and polite because they're super rich and they don't have a problem in the world to worry about but happen to be working towards all these actually evil ends. And I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was a really great character choice. It really illustrates the cognitive dissonance between those two ideas in a way that is immediately absorbable, that immediately stands out and connects with you. And I thought that was great. I really loved that choice. And for the record, I like Dimitri, the king of shit, as he calls himself, right? This idea that you can be this kind of gross oligarch who happens to hit the right thing at the right time and as a result you get the wife who actually cares about you and the attractive younger woman who just wants you to buy things to make her look good and you can just be the king of shit and enjoy your life like that's smart the idea that it takes such one just blind luck sometimes that he just happened to find the perfect spot and the perfect opportunity to get into his literal manure business. Um, but also the ability to just fully roll into that and no need to be ashamed or to, you know, downplay any of those elements because it made you extremely wealthy. So pardon the pun, who gives a shit? Uh, and and that's the thing, is that this cast is so much more interesting once you get away from Carl and Yaya, to the point where you have to wonder why we started focusing on them at all. Like, they could have just been another group of people on the yacht, and it would have been fine. It would have been better, honestly. This was two films rather than three films. It's a better one film. I I agree, but I think without sort of the introduction and that discussion, that momentary discussion of, of gender roles, that part of the ending then... Because Aslan is trying to do two things with the ending. He's trying to have two different conversations. And I think one is very, very successful. And the second one, because the first part of the movie is so kind of just like, eh... The, the second conversation he's trying to have there at the end just falls a little bit flat. Um, but yeah, talking about uh, uh, about that kind of captain's dinner, because obviously the dinner happens and we have, you know, all of a sudden the guests start 
um, reacting very poorly to the the rotten food that they have been served. Um, I would say that the illness that is that is shown on screen uh, is gratuitous. Um, it's a bit much. It's definitely. Um, it's definitely. <laughs> you don't say. There is a there is a wealth of bodily fluids that are excreted onto the screen. However, as all of this is happening, we have, I will call it a brilliant backdrop. Uh, and all of this is the backdrop to, to what is a very, very wonderful moment between Dimitri and, uh, and the captain, uh, Thomas Smith, played by, again, played by Woody fucking Harrelson, that I think is probably the only person on the planet that could make this scene work. Because there is this discussion between Thomas and Dimitri that originally starts as sort of, you know, they're both fine because Thomas, uh, he doesn't eat that rich food. He had a burger and chips, which is just, again, peak Woody Harrelson. And Dimitri, who's fucking you know russian shit salesman like i'm pretty sure that dude could drink straight uranium and be fine and they begin to have this this tete-a-tete uh while drinking you know shots of of whatever and discussing uh quotes from famous capitalists and favorite uh famous communists uh thomas smith obviously quoting the communists and Dmitry quoting the capitalists uh, because it's an American socialist and a Russian capitalist, which is an excellent subversion of expectations and really kind of shows kind of what happened as we came out of the Cold War, of this sort of, you know, very pro-capitalist uh, pro Russian as all of these oligarchs take control and basically just turn all of the the uh, government-owned industries into just individually-owned industries. Um, a lot of people, you know, don't pay attention to the fact that Russia, the people that were in charge during, you know, the, the fall of communism, basically stayed in charge during the rise of the Russian Federation. They Whoa. just sort of moved to different places. And, and you know, instead of being like, you know, um, uh, I'm going to uh, Rasputin you know, Romanov is in charge. It's like Romanov Industries is in charge of like 99% of the oil industry in Russia and, you know, things like that. And out of, you know, out of the, the 80s into the early 90s, even though there was this extreme push of sort of uh, Reaganomics, there has always been this discussion about how do we take care of the people around us? We have, um, you know, the, the Clinton administration's focus on children's health care and trying to clean up, uh, you know, education and infrastructure and sort of these reinvestments back into the country as a whole um, that sort of faded away and collapsed. And here we are on the edge of, uh, you know, collapse as a modern state and a world superpower. Um, but I digress. And it's this wonderful conversation as they go back and forth and as they get drunker and drunker and drunker. And we have this moment where they are in the captain's quarters, they're locked in there, and they are, you know, talking over the intercom. It's an open microphone, and Dimitri is like, Mayday, the, the, the boat is sinking, and everybody freaks out, and then he fucking laughs. And it's, it's brilliant. <laughs> See, that I liked. I, I will say, um, it, 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 is, it is amazing how extended a sequence has to be for me to have the like Monty Python and the Holy Grail get on with it kind of reaction to a conversation of communism versus capitalism. It just, it goes on for so long 
And the whole sequence really goes on for so long. That moment's a great one when they, they talk, like, kind of tell everyone that the ship is actually sinking. Uh, another great moment, I can't remember if it was Therese or it was Vera, but there is the older woman who's, like, over the toilet, and then, like, the boat rocks one way, and she falls towards the wall. It's Vera, yeah, has to Vera. Go. Yeah, Vera. And, like, like, just back and forth, and she's having to try to time <laughs> her throwing up with when she happens to be over the toilet. That's a very funny scene. I, I Obviously, mileage will vary, um, but, I, like... For for I, I, as someone who doesn't really like gross out humor in general, that constant rocking and trying to balance yourself in that moment, that was like a ooh, that's brutal, but also very well shot and very well executed. Um, it's just it goes on for so long that you wonder after a while if this is just the film now. Like, are we just in this kind of constant shipwreck and things are going to be like? escalating further from here because we know obviously they're going to have to be even further consequences to this right the captain hasn't been paying attention this entire time which seems like an important thing for a captain to do during a storm um and you have um everyone super sick and the damage of that is going to be more than just a single cleaning staff can handle in a day i didn't expect pirates I'm going to be honest with you, Walter. I did not see the pirates coming. Um, I think it's kind of a cute moment when it's like, oh, is that one of our grenades? Um, with the, the arms dealer couple? Like, that's kind of cute. So good. So, <laughs> so, so fucking well done. Um, like, and, and they're not even being smart enough to be like, well, just hold, hold it. Just fucking hold the pin down, like the the handle down, and like or throw it off the side of the boat. They're just like, oh, a grenade! It's one of ours, and then boom! Yeah, because oh they don't know how God. it works. They just make it. They're just the beneficiaries of the people who actually know how to do it. That's a very funny moment. Um, but yeah, pirates. Did you see the pirates coming? Was this something that I just was? Was it just me, or was that? Um, a, a twist that was necessary to get to the third movie of the movies that we're watching. See, here's the thing. Um, it, it was, it was, it was not expected. Um, it was greatly appreciated though, because it felt, it made the consequence, right? It is a very, it's interesting that you, you talked about sort of this escalation of, of, you know, the, the scene as it kept going and kept going and kept going because it was very much a storm. It was the escalation and the tension of everything that was going on was continuing to build as more people got sick, as they got into worse and worse situations. The Vera scene, my partner goes, why doesn't she just get in the tub? No, duh. Um, but like this escalation, 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 and then it just stops. Because that's how storms at sea happen. They build up, they build up, they keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, and then they stop and they dissipate and they move on. And I truly thought that to get to the shipwreck part of this, it was going to be one of those maroon scenes where, you know, one of the people wakes up, uh, you know, light or something hits them, a coconut, a seagull, uh, you know, a, a pack of roving dogs, like whatever, and like bumps them awake. And now they're on this white sandy beach and there's all the debris and everything around them. So when Clementine and Winston are like standing there and everything's normal, I'm like, oh, okay like what what's and then the pirates show up and blow up the boat and now we're in act three and i'm like okay that wasn't necessary 
absolutely not. But again, a little bit of subversion here. I, I truly appreciate that. Um, because then we get into Act 3. We get into uh, a number of them are now marooned on this island. And uh, we have Carl, we have Yaya, um, Dimitri, Therese, Paula, who has survived, Yarmo. Um, we have uh, a, another gentleman that's on there that ends up, you know, maybe he was one of the pirates. But there's an entire scene between this guy, Nelson, and Dimitri where they're like, are you a pirate? I don't see you. And he's like, no, I worked in the engine room. And like, you never actually find out whether he was a pirate or not until there's a later scene where Dimitri's like, let me ask you a question. <laughs> it just is so good in particular because not even the head of the service staff is able to confirm or deny whether this guy was an employee because they care so little about the actual service staff, the power a ship like this, the people who are doing the hard manual labor to recognize who he is and what he looks like, even among people whose job it is to manage those people. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, hold on, Chase. Uh, obviously, you've never worked at a restaurant before because the front of house management doesn't give a shit what's going on with back of house. I mean, that's fair enough, but that's also part of the point, right? Like, it's super, like, it is really well illustrated that nobody cared enough to actually know that this guy was a ship mechanic, which is really, like, I think a really nice point to illustrate, right? This idea that these people who put in so much of this work go so unseen until there is a moment in which they can add value in a way that directly benefits these uber-rich people. Which is what makes Abigail's story in here uh, so rewarding to a certain extent. Because we didn't have a hero, Walter, for the first two-thirds of this film, but Abigail, I think, is the closest we get. Uh, Abigail, uh, absolutely girl-bossing it up, uh, saving everyone by actually knowing what to do in an, a survival situation like this, and not putting up with people's shit because she recognizes that they all need her way more than she needs them. And that's great. That's fun. It's a great way to set up the stage for everything that happens in the last third of this film. Absolutely. And it is that, that those first moments that we have, right? It's it's the uh it's the 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 wealthy, the guests are immediately going after the service people, are immediately going after Paula. Take care of us, take care of us. What are we supposed to do? Attacking Nelson because he happens to be black and be pirates. We're black, he must be a pirate. We should, you know, go after him. Abigail, you know, even even Paula goes to Abigail, is like, okay, well, like, you're an employee, like it's time for you to like take care of all these guests. And she's like, nah, like fuck you. And was so smart that she started by taking some of the, like, the water and the food when she realized they were just going to hoard it all for themselves and, like, putting in her backpack to make sure she had something is, like, yes, this is somebody that cares about survival because this is someone that has to survive day in and day out. They are not, you know, Abigail is nowhere close to this level of wealth where they don't have to even think about these things. There's, you know, a moment later on where she's like, well, can you make a fire? And, like, they're all like, what, what do you mean? Like, I'm a little surprised Dimitri didn't know how to make a fire just because, like, that would seem like a, just, like, maybe that's, like, he has one little skill or something that carried over from his time in, like, the KGB youth or something. I don't know. 
Um, but it is just very clear she immediately usurps and Paula and Yaya both realize that she's in charge and she's the one that they have to kowtow behind because my partner hated Paula. She absolutely detested this character. It's like, what is her point? Why is she still there? Why is she alive? And I'm like, because she's the middle manager. That's the point. She's a different kind of useless. She is a... You have to have somebody in between the king and the peasants. And that person can't be too good at their job or too smart or too intelligent because they'll suddenly realize they can manipulate all the peasants to take out, you know, take out the king and become king themselves. And the, you know, like that's why the king needs them to be dumb, but they also need them to be smart enough that they're like better and they're elevated above the peasants. And that's what Paula is. She's a fucking middle manager asking for TPS reports. So what does she do? She pulls a fucking Dwight Schrute and clings onto the new leader and is like, yes, I will, I will be your, your, you know, your right hand. So be it. And Yaya's a fucking gold digger. She knows where the money is right now. It's the food that's in Abigail's hands. Um, just, just incredibly done kind of creation of what they're going to do for this. Um, and, and, and then there's the extortion. There's there's the sexual extortion of Carl. Yeah. Which, you know, there's obviously an element of to the victor to go the spoils to this, right? Abigail has gotten herself to a position in which she finally gets a chance to get what she wants. She is no longer subservient to the middle manager Paula as you very eloquently put it Uh, she is no longer subservient to the whims of these uber rich people they are subservient to her and she finally gets a chance to get what she wants and what she wants is the male model and you know what on one hand obviously not great um, the idea of forcing someone into a sexual relationship to get uh, the kind of food and supplies that they want. Not ideal. Um, it is very funny because it kind of reverses the, you know, Carl is so jealous of Yaya just looking at a guy in the second act. And in the third act, he is straight up sleeping with Abigail. And that's meant to, like, like he doesn't even have the, like, self-confidence to be like, I have to tell her. He's like, should I tell her? Should I let Yaya know? Should we just be open about this? I don't know what to do, because I've never had an independent thought in my life. Um, and so, like, Come on, now, he was reading Ulysses. Sure, I'm sure he was. I guarantee you, um, and look, I, I mean, look, I hate Ulysses. I hate, um, oh God, what's his name? James Joyce, that's the guy. I have famously said um, back when I was doing my English degree that I would rather take a cheese grater to the face than read another James Joyce novel. So I guarantee you he was not reading Ulysses. He was having the book Ulysses in front of him because he wanted to look cool, Um, which is also Ulysses makes you look cool. Well, because it's like meant to be a smart book. It's really people who, who specialize in English literature, struggle with Ulysses because it is famously incredibly dense and obtuse because James Joyce believed that you should have to work to understand what a book is trying to tell you. That if you're able to understand it on the first read without having to put in substantial effort, then the author has failed to create something that has actual value. Because James Joyce 
fucking sucks. I hate Batman, the Passion of a Thousand Suns, but I guarantee you that I get, like there's no way that Prelegot Ulysses is anything more than wanting someone to walk by him and be like, oh, you're reading Ulysses. You must be a really smart person because only really smart people read Ulysses because everyone else immediately bounces off of it because it fucking sucks. Anyway, that's enough of my James Joyce rant. Um, just needed to get that off my chest because he dropped it with Ulysses. Um, but yeah, I like, know. <laughs> oh, man. I, I just, Abigail, like, at the end of the day, I don't blame her for wanting to use her power the way she does. And I certainly don't blame her at the end of the film when she recognizes that, like, they have found civilization and they're going to have to go back. Her going to find a rock to attack Yaya in hopes of, like, kind of protecting herself and not actually making contact with civilization? I get it. I totally understand. I would not want to be subservient to those people either. And when Yaya's response without looking back is to say, like, hey, I can give you a job being my assistant? Oh, go fuck yourself, Yaya. Excellent. You okay, perfect. perfect. Absolutely deserve to be hit by a rock. Obviously, we don't know whether she does or not. The film kind of leaves that open-ended uh, as it just kind of cuts to Carl running through the jungle calling Yaya's name. But, like, man, what a... Like, literally, everyone I was watching that film with at the time, we all did a collective, ooh, Yaya should not have said that. That's the, that's the one thing you should not have said in that moment. Um, but, yeah, it, it certainly is a fascinating, if a bit messy, exploration of how that gender and power dynamic gets reversed with Abigail. Yeah, it, it's interesting you bring up, like, to the Victor go the spoils, because Abigail says that, like, as much herself as, like, I work hard. I like do all the co like I do all of these things. Like, don't I deserve to have something nice? And Carl's being like, "Yeah, you do, baby. Of course you do." Like, I'm totally not being manipulated into having a sexual relationship with you because the only thing of value that I have on this island is my looks. Like, no, you do you, baby girl. You girl boss it, which is gross. <laughs> like, I'm I'm gonna be honest here. I like that the rich people are fucking getting their just desserts. And I'm going to be honest with you. We were on that island for like five minutes and I turned and looked at my partner. I'm like, how much you want to bet there's a resort on the other side of this island? And yeah. lo and fucking behold, there's a resort on the other side of the island. Because guess what I thought about, right? So there's a number of, of moments where they show like everybody else seeing Carl going into the lifeboat and they blow the whistle and all these things. Like we have to assume they've been there for like, multiple days right like like a while right where the fuck does abigail keep getting these fucking pretzels from there's no way they had that many goddamn pretzels in that lifeboat there's no way abigail knew the like maybe not the entire time but she knew early on that there was something on the other side of that island and i bet she was sneaking in there and getting food and she was maintaining this which is why that ending is so great and part of the reason why i did some additional research was because i was like i want yo yo ruben i want to know about this ending baby like tell me about this ending <laughs> so i listened to some really shitty like video essayist talk about the ending and he had the opposite take like yaya is showing that she's like learned from her experience and that she's offering to help 
someone less fortunate than herself by giving her a job. I was like, oh, bro, you, oh. So then I wanted to go listen to to Ruben talk about it. And yeah, that's kind of like what he gets at is like it's supposed to be this sort of open-ended question and open to interpretation because that kind of like shows what kind of a person you are. Because as much as this is a, a satire and a discussion about like the ultra wealthy, it's actually a discussion about society as a whole. Because we've done such a great job in our individualistic and singular focused society about what's best for me that like middle class people treat lower class people that exact same way. Upper lower class people treat lower lower class people and poverty level people and homeless people that exact same way. There's all these, you know, memes and discussions about like, yeah, millennials like are usually the best tippers because they're also service industry people and they know how much we struggle. So like they'll give a better tip than the Karen that spent $150 and sent her steak back three times. Like all of these things. And that even though it does seem to be kind of focused on like the ultra wealthy, there is this larger discussion just about how society kind of treats everyone. But the other thing that really intrigued me was... Abigail kind of looked like a snake there at the end. Putting the hands behind her. There was this very like serpent-esque looking motif that from what I researched, I, I don't see anything about it. So I'm not sure there's anything there. But yeah, that moment. And like, is it hesitation that she has because she's, you know, potentially going to accept this offer from Yaya for a job? Or is it that she paused because she was afraid Yaya was going to turn around, look her in the face, see this crazy deranged woman about to hit her in the head with a rock? Like, or did it's she a curious pause? ending. Like, or did she pause because murdering someone is a big deal? And does that is that the person that she wants to be? And what are the consequences if she actually does it, right? Because she has to go back to camp. Theoretically, someone's going to find this eventually. It's a zero-sum game. Is she going to kill every rich person here? Probably yes. not. I mean, maybe. Maybe yes. that's her play all along. But I, I think there is a pause of like, how does this actually play out for me? Um, and yeah, I mean, it's open-ended for a reason, right? I, I definitely love the idea of it being up to interpretation what Abigail's going to do with that kind of offer. Because it, yeah, it, 100%. There, there are people, like my parents, and I love my parents, but they're firm capitalists and they would say well isn't that nice of her because she's going to give abigail a much better job than the one that she had one that isn't going to require as much physical labor that gives her more agency that gives her a higher quality of life isn't that such a nice thing and meanwhile you and i i think have both come down on the the power dynamic in play here means that yaya hasn't learned a goddamn thing because even in her best case offer, it is keeping Abigail subservient to her. The power dynamic cannot change no matter what Abigail has actually done for Yaya, because Yaya cannot imagine a situation going back to society in which she can't be above Abigail. And that is a really interesting divide that people are going to get to. I think it's unfortunate, you know, this podcast might give you an outsized impression of what I personally feel about the film at the end of the day. And it's because we're just focused on the quick hits right now. 
we're hitting all of the most important scenes, the most interesting scenes, the ones in which the characters that had the most to say make the most out of the time that they have. But boy, is there a lot of blank space in between these moments. This is a film that is 147 minutes long. If it was at 120 minutes, if we cut a full 27 minutes from this film, I'd argue it could still probably use some edits. And that's a real bummer, because the stuff that's good here is really good and really interesting. And I want to spend more time focused on the stuff that really matters. And there's just so much time that gets wasted reiterating points that we already firmly recognize or spent with characters that don't add a new dynamic or having an extended uh, ship scene with everyone, like with, with the, the boat getting caught up in the storm in which the point being made is made about 10 minutes before the scene actually ends. And I just wish we could see the version of this film that had that extra scalpel to make the cuts that were needed. Because all of these conversations we're having are a lot more interesting when we ignore all the stuff that we're not talking about that doesn't make it into the Wikipedia plot synopsis because it didn't fucking matter. I mean, Chase, it was in post-production for almost two years. I'm... I, I don't know any more time in the editing room would have accomplished anything because I think this is exactly the story that Ruben Ostlin wanted to tell in its entirety. Um, yeah, could you cut the entire first act of this movie and have our introduction to Carl and Yaya be way shorter, way more succinct, and still kind of get the same points? Absolutely. Could all that stuff have happened once they were already on the boat? absolutely you could easily have done the exact same thing by having it be like they order drinks from the bar and carl's card gets declined and yaya has to like roll her eyes and pay for it herself and like have this like little tiff that is then prodded by the you know uh, the maintenance man taking off his shirt and yaya giving him googly eyes and like boom there you already have that entire thing and that's probably like a five minute scene instead um i will 100 percent agree i don't think there is a lot in that first act that is necessary for the rest of the film um, I think you do have to cut out some of the discussion in the third act about sort of the, like the power dynamics and, you know, reversal agenda roles that he, he, again, he's trying to have both conversations. He's trying to have the conversation of swapping socioeconomic roles by Abigail being in charge, but then also gender roles by putting Abigail, Yaya, and Paula in charge of the men you know, and the men underneath them. Where like, I don't think any of those dudes really wanted to be the leader, like, Dimitri maybe for a moment, but then when he's like, oh, I don't know how to fucking do anything. Like, I'm lazy and fat. You guys do the work. Like, that's exactly what would have happened anyways. The, um, the general stuff is definitely the weakest, which is funny because, as my roommate explained to me, uh, Ruben Ostland has made films specifically focused on those gender roles that are much more interesting. Uh, Force Majeure, uh, for instance, is a film in which a Swedish businessman and his family are staying at the Alps, and there is a controlled avalanche uh, that's coming down and seems to be threatening the people who are there. And the wife protects the kids, and he 
runs away like a coward. And the rest of the film is dealing with the aftermath of that. That sounds super interesting, right? Because it plays so much on trauma responses, on the way in which we expect men to step up in these kinds of situations, and perhaps the expectation of the woman to be the caretaker for the kids while he just gets to go and run because he knows that she's already going to take care of that. I'm super interested in, in watching that film at some point. I don't know that we're going to do it for the podcast because it's from 2014 and we've got a lot of other things on the list. But generals need time to breathe and really be explored in its own setting and to have a chance to stand on its own. And I think maybe that's where some of the bloat comes in is because he wants to have scenes like the scene in which the men hunt one of the, I think it was a, was it a donkey, I believe? Yes. Where they decide to kill a donkey. And it's this really extended scene of them like finding the donkey and then he hits it over the head and everyone celebrates. And then it turns out the donkey's still alive. So he has to hit it a bunch more over the head. People are a lot less celebratory, but then at the end, they kind of get to celebrate that he did the man thing, even though it's very clear that there was no glory in it. And like, okay, like I get it. I understand the purpose of the scene. I get what it's trying to say. I just, it feels tacked on in a way that the conversations about money and power don't. Those are really sharp when they're focused on. And I wish the film had just kept their focus on that because that's what this film is ultimately about. The rest of it just feels unnecessary, I guess, in the end. I, I get where you're coming from, and I, I, I do agree. There are definitely places that you could cut, tighten up the film, and, and make it better. I think some of the... Some of the... Oh, man. I, the... the extravagance of the film for for lack of a better word i again i think it's on purpose i think it's supposed to be you know luxurious for those of us that want to see the ultra wealthy kind like this the this you know everybody getting sick scene i i think it's it's over the top it's gratuitous but it is supposed to be this sort of catharsis for everyone that wants to see you know, I don't know. Let me pick a name out of hat. Elon Musk, for example, like shit himself on live television. You know, I, I think it's supposed to be like that, but it in essence becomes the thing that it's trying to make fun of, of that's this like ultra luxurious and just like over the top and almost satirical in and of itself. Um, I'm not going to fight you on that. I don't think that this is a perfect film at all, but before I get to my, my final thoughts, Chase, your your final thoughts, your final grade for Triangle of Sadness. Triangle of Sadness is a really interesting film because the stuff that I like about it, I really like. And then there's the rest of it. Um, I do believe there's a version of this film that's very good. And I, I agree with some of the critics who point out that if you ended it earlier or started later, you probably have a much sharper film for it. As the film stands on its own merits, I give it a 7 out of 10. I think there's a lot to like here. I think if you watch it, you will find a lot of things that you enjoy within this film, and you will understand why it got Best Original Screenplay, if nothing else. I think the Best Picture, Best Director nods maybe a little bit friendly, but hey, 
Um, I, I get it. There, there's enough artistry here, and there's enough really good work done uh, by people that are mostly unknown actors. You mentioned Woody Harrelson, but the rest of this cast are not A-listers by any means, and there are some really good performances that are thrown in to make this stuff work. It's just that getting to these moments, the ones that are worth talking about on an hour-long podcast, takes a lot longer than you want it to. And so I can only give it a seven. I think that is a very reasonable uh, criticism across the board. Um, Chase, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save the suspense. You don't have to wonder anymore. I fucking love this movie. <laughs> I fucking loved this movie. The American socialist in me was um, giddy by the constant come-ups, uh, come-uppance that the wealthy were facing and the very satirical, you know, stereotyping of them. Um, I think that the interactions between uh, Zlatko Brich, who played Dimitri, and Woody Harrelson, who was the captain, was fantastic. It was like 20 minutes of me laughing, just, just guttural, not over the top because it was natural. I wasn't like fake laughing, but it, it was probably that scene from the beginning of the captain's dinner to the, the next morning where the grenade blows up and kills Winston and uh, Clementine. I probably laughed that entire like half an hour uh, just straight um, because this was like I said, it was a catharsis. It was me getting to see everything I want to happen to the ultra wealthy, um, you know, in a funny way. Like the the reality is, is like I want bad things to happen to bad people. And don't get me wrong. I think being ultra rich makes you a bad person inherently. Um, and, you know, I am not going to be able to live out my dreams of watching Marie Antoinette be guillotined. I, I have to settle for this. Um, and I, I'm going to give it an eight out of 10, uh, eight out of 10. Um, I would say it would be a seven. I would agree with you on the seven, but because of how much I enjoyed Dimitri and the captain going back and forth with each other, I'm going to give it a, a whole extra point. Um, Woody Harrelson, please just play drunk, like people that appear in indie movies for like a half hour for the rest of your career. Um, you'd make a shit ton of money doing that, and it's not that much work, apparently. <laughs> uh, but uh, that has been the podcast. That has been our discussion of Triangle of Sadness. Um, I think if you like these sort of art house, Oscar Beatty, you know, uh, kind of avant-garde, like not, you know, standard AAA motion pictures. I think you would greatly enjoy it. If you're someone who really only watches movies for junk food and you're just like a ginormous Transformers Fast and the Furious person, you're probably not going to like this movie that much. But I don't know. This is probably a better movie to give a shot than Tar. Um, I think this is a much more approachable. I think it's much more approachable than Tar. Uh, I, listen, I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep fucking punching down on that film. Uh, it is going to be my Ulysses chase. <laughs> I guarantee. It. Harsh but fair. Harsh but fair. If you want to join me in beating up Chase over Tar, Chase, where can the good folks at home find you? You can find me at Chase Wassenaar on Twitter. You can find the podcast at Rough Drafts Pod. Um, of course, if you are subscribed into our general feed. You'll get this and Final Cut, uh, <laughs> this Final Cut and Steam Cleaners, our gaming podcast. I swear I remember what show we're doing right now. Um, but of course, if you just want to do 
a Final Cut, just stay on the Final Cut feed. We'll have something for you every two weeks, and obviously we're going to keep doing our Oscars dive, so uh, please stay tuned for some other really interesting films. We're watching All's Quiet on the Western Front next. I'm saying it. We're watching that movie next. You're not fucking, you know, pushing me off to the side for something else. I'm watch. I'm watching a fucking war movie. I need a war movie after this avant-garde indie stuff. We're watching a war movie. Harsh but fair, Walter. Harsh but fair. <laughs> we'll go to war over it. That's the Chase Wassenaar guarantee that you get this entire podcast back. I mean, they get it for free anyways, so... How... <laughs> but... <laughs> But if you would like to gush over the uh, the Dimitri captain scene, you guys can find me at C80s underscore LOL for as long as Twitter continues working or until I find something better. Um, and join us again in two weeks. We're going to talk about All's Quiet on the Western Front come hell or high water. Until then, goodbye, Internet. <laughs>